Biographical Bites from Bella, Laurel Hill West Stories, number 15, from mid-December 2022. Pulling out all the stops, the Wanamaker organ, the Curtis organ, and Larry Ferrari. start, again, I'm going to ask you for a favor. First of all, tell your friends about the Laurel Hill podcast. Tell them how easy they are to enjoy on your smartphone or your Bluetooth device. If necessary, show them how to stream or download. A surprising number of people are still intimidated by the idea of podcasts. And I also ask you to give us a rating, especially if you listen from Apple Podcasts. The more people who give an evaluation, the higher the show goes in the algorithms. After all, Laurel Hill may be the only cemetery in the United States that has its own regular podcasts. Thanks. Welcome to the 15th episode of Biographical Bites from Bala, Laurel Hill West Stories, a historic an active cemetery in Ballack-Kinwood, Pennsylvania. I am Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine from Temple University, volunteer tour guide, and volunteer podcaster. Laurel Hill West opened in 1869 across the river from its sister cemetery, Laurel Hill East in Philadelphia. It's more than twice as big as Laurel Hill East and it has a totally different feel and a strikingly different population. And like Laurel Hill East, it is open 365 days a year, now from 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. There's plenty of parking at the business office just off Belmont Avenue or at the conservatory and the bell tower. If you enter on Belmont, follow the road past the second gate with the white line in the middle. Another possibility? Just duck in while you're walking the Kenwood Trail. Your best bet for public transportation is to take a bus to the Wissahickon Transfer Center on Ridge Avenue, and then cross the Pencoid Pedestrian Bridge and come in via the Writer's Ferry entrance across from the Pet Cemetery. This 15th episode of Biographical Bites from Bala is for mid-December 2022. It started out being about just Larry Ferrari, longtime Philadelphia television organ star. But I did some reading about organs, which took me to the two biggest instruments in the city, the Wanamaker organ and the Curtis organ at Irvine Auditorium. So you're essentially getting a full All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories Instead of the usually simpler and shorter biographical bites from Bala, Laurel Hill West stories, I hope you don't mind. As is common, what I had planned as a simple biographical podcast ballooned into something more complex as I dug into it. Originally, this podcast was to be about Larry Ferrari, who's at Laurel Hill West and whose face occupied the Sunday morning television for many years. And yes, I will talk about him. But while researching the type of organ that he played, I remember that at Laurel Hill West, we also had Robert Irvine, whose bequest led to the building of the Irvine Auditorium, on the Penn campus, which houses the magnificent Curtis organ donated by publisher Cyrus H.K. Curtis 
also at Laurel Hill West. And you really can't talk about organs in Philadelphia without mentioning the largest playable musical instrument in the world. That's the building-filling Wanamaker organ. Were there Laurel Hill connections? Oh, of course there were. And then I thought about Francis Thomas Lilly's Sully Darley, Philadelphia's go-to 19th century organist. I decided I'm going to talk about him on a members-only podcast in 2023. Remember, if you're a member of the Friends of Laurel Hill, you get two members-only podcasts every year. Each of them features three people that I don't talk about on the regularly scheduled podcasts. For today, you're going to hear about two famous organs and one famous organist on Biographical Bites from Bala, Laurel Hill West Stories. Pulling out all the stops, organs and Laurel Hill. The term organ referred to any musical instrument so long ago as the 12th century. But by the 14th century, the musical term's meaning had narrowed to refer specifically to the keyboard-based instrument. At the same time, a separate meaning arose. An organ was a body part adapted to a certain function. It was sort of a stop between a tissue and an organ system. Notice that I said an organ is a keyboard-based instrument, but a pipe organ is actually a wind instrument. If you don't have a way to push air through a pipe, putting pressure on a key will result in just a quiet thunk. Think of a pipe organ as a big box of whistles played with an air compressor and a keyboard. And the biggest organs have multiple keyboards, which are called manuals if played with the hands, and pedal boards or pedal claviers if played with the feet. For instance, the Curtis organ has four manuals, while the Wanamaker organ has six. A typical manual covers five octaves of 12 notes each, with 61 keys. That means with the pedal board and the six manuals, the Wanamaker organ has more than 400 keys. The typical pipe organ makes its sound by forcing compressed air, called wind, through pipes which are selected by the manual. Unlike a piano or a harpsichord, the sound of an organ will not decay as long as wind is flowing. In other words, pushing a key causes a binary action of yes or no. A note is played. There is no control over its volume or its pitch. A stop is what allows winds into the pipes. Each stop can be on or pulled out to admit wind or off or pushed in to stop wind. When someone pulls out all the stops, the organ plays all variations of its sounds at once and is as loud as possible. When all the stops are pushed in, you can pound the keyboard all you like, and you will not hear a single note. Organ pipes, or the whistle, are made of metal like lead, tin, copper, alloys. They can be made of wood or even bamboo. Each pipe can play exactly one note with one type of sound. The pipes vary in size from smaller than your pinky finger to several-story tall, one-ton or more monsters, which are more felt than heard. The octave sounded by a given pipe is inversely proportional to its length. In other words, a four-foot pipe speaks exactly one octave higher than an eight-foot pipe, and a 16-foot pipe speaks one octave below an eight-foot pipe. Octave pitch lengths used in the largest organs include 64 feet, 32 feet, 16, 8, 4, 2, 1, 1 half, and 1 quarter, 3 inches. That's for a full 9 octave range. Pedal boards usually cover 2.5 octaves using 32, 32 foot pedals. Notes from the pedal board can also be varied by using their stops. A pipe can be either flue, F-L-U-E, or labial type, 
with no moving parts and a sound produced by the vibration of air molecules, like in a trumpet or a flute. Or it can be a reed or lingual pipe, whose sound is produced by a vibrating reed, like with a clarinet or a bassoon. Flue pipes can be metallic or wooden. Metal pipes are usually circular in cross-section. Wooden pipes are usually square or rectangular. Although triangular and round wooden pipes do exist. A flue pipe has two major parts, a foot and a resonator. The foot is the bottom portion of the pipe. It's usually cone-shaped, so it will slip in the hole of the compression box. At its base is the toe hole. That's where the wind comes in. The length of the foot does not affect the pipe's pitch. The resonator supports the oscillations of air generated at the mouth of the pipe, which is a horizontal opening at the juncture of the resonator and the foot. The voicing, the length of the resonator, and the resonator's volume all determine the fundamental pitch of a flue pipe. A reed or lingual pipe is sounded by a vibrating brass strip known as a reed. When wind is directed towards the reed, it vibrates at a specific pitch. Timbre is the quality and sound that lets us determine which instrument is playing and maybe even who is playing it. The concert pitch A has a different tone on a trombone and an oboe, even though a concert A above middle C has exactly the same frequency for all instruments, 440 oscillations per second, or 440 hertz. Timbre, sound quality, tone, it's what allows a jazz head like me to immediately know the sound of John Coltrane versus that of Ben Webster or Sonny Rollins, even though they all played the same instrument. A set of organ pipes that produces the same timbre for each note is called a rank. Each key on a pipe organ controls a note which may be sounded by different ranks of pipe alone or in combination, depending on how many stops are pulled out. Its different combinations of stops change the timbre of the instrument. The selection of stops is called the registration. You can pull out a two-foot 4-foot, 8-foot, and 16-foot stop to get one note sounded in four octaves. Now, on modern organs, the registration can be changed instantaneously with the aid of a combination action, which usually involves pistons. Pistons are buttons placed either between the manuals, called thumb pistons, or above the pedal board, where they are called toe studs or toe pistons. Most large organs have both preset and programmable pistons. There are three essential tonal families of flue pipes. Flutes, diapasons or principles, and strings. Flutes are generally the widest pipes and they produce the tone with the least harmonics or overtones. Diapasons or principles are the characteristic sound of a pipe organ. They are not intended to imitate any other sound or instrument. They have a range of up to nine octaves. String pipes are the narrowest. They produce a bright sound. The wind system produces, stores, and delivers air to the pipes. If you played an organ before motors were invented, someone had to operate the bellows by hand. By the mid-1800s, bellows were being run by water engines, steam-powered engines, or gas-powered engines. Nowadays, almost all pipe organs have electrically powered bellows, which push air into a wind chest or a reservoir. The wind is then released into individual pipes when a key is pressed on the console and a stop is opened. Finally, what do all the manuals or keyboards do? Pushing a key on a manual was at one time a mechanical process, which means there was a direct connection from the key to the pipe, which might have been many feet away in another room or even around a corner. The number of moving parts and the possibility of breakdown was staggering. 
Large organs, like the Wanamaker, have more than 100,000 moving parts. Now, most stops are operated by electronic circuits. The third manual up the console, or the swell, has pipes enclosed in a box with shutters on one side, kind of like vertical Venetian blinds. The shutters can be opened and closed with a foot pedal. And this causes the sound to increase or decrease in volumes, in other words, swell. The second manual up on most US and UK organs is the grate, which plays the guts of the organ. This is where the main stops are located. If there's a third manual, it's the choir. It's not used to accompany a choir, but it contains softer flutes and reeds. The choir pipes are sometimes placed at the front of the case, below the player, resembling the seat of a chair. Bigger organs have other manuals, such as solo, echo, and bombard. The console or key desk is where it all comes together, kind of like the flight deck of an aircraft or a spacecraft. Manuals, pedal boards, stops and pistons are all within relatively easy reach of the player. Now that was a lot of information, but it shows you the complexity of this mighty instrument. If you want to take a break, go to YouTube. You will find many demonstrations of organ sounds and even tours of organ guts. I'm going to start by talking about the largest playable musical instrument in the world, the Wanamaker organ next door to City Hall in Center City, Philadelphia. John Wanamaker, 1838 to 1922, the Merchant Prince of Philadelphia, is not buried at Laurel Hill. His final resting place is at St. James the Less Episcopal Churchyard on West Clearfield Avenue. He's interred in the Wanamaker family private chapel, which was designed by Laurel Hill West resident John T. Windrum, who also designed the Wanamaker home, Lindenhurst. Also interred at Laurel Hill West are two of John Wanamaker's younger brothers, Francis Marion Wanamaker in the Rockland section and William Henry Wanamaker in the Woodlawn section. Wanamaker became a merchant when he was rejected for military duty during the Civil War due to a persistent cough. He and his brother-in-law Nathan Brown opened a clothing store in 1861. When Brown died in 1869 in his late 30s, he was interred at Mount Vernon Cemetery across Ridge Avenue from Laurel Hill East. Wanamaker grew up as a strict Presbyterian, and he was a regular churchgoer. The Reverend John Chambers, 1797 to 1875, was his guiding light, and he set the principles by which Wanamaker lived. Reverend Chambers is interred at Laurel Hill East. In Section T, he is practically next door to orthopedic surgeon Oscar Alice, whom I talked about in an earlier podcast. Wanamaker liked the idea of live music in his store. He had an organ installed at his first location at 6th and Market. That is the site which had previously served as the place of George Washington's presidential residence in the 1790s and the location of the first Philadelphia High School in 1838. John Wanamaker and his Princeton-educated son Rodman Wanamaker made many modifications in the way that people shopped. They were the first to use price tags. They were the first to place full-page advertisements in newspapers. And their business boomed. They planned for a major expansion, a new store covering an entire city block just across the street from City Hall. It would stand 12 stories high with a basement and a sub-basement. And at its heart, would be a grand court open from street level to the top of the seventh floor. Now, what is now called the Wanamaker organ began its life at the 1904 World's Fair in St. Louis. It was designed by British polymath George Ashton Owsley, and it had five manuals, 140 stops, and more than 10,000 pipes. The largest pipe was a 32-foot open diapason, 
There's a publicity photo from back then that shows a Shetland pony standing inside the pipe. The organ was to go to Kansas City after the fair, but that city refused to pay for it when there was an economic downturn. No buyer could be found, so into storage it went. In 1909, five years after the fair closed, this organ was rescued by John Wanamaker with plans to place it in his palatial Philadelphia store. The amount that he paid was reported to be whatever had accumulated as a storage cost. The disassembled organ filled 13 rail freight cars as it was hauled across country. Its reassembly took two years and it was first officially heard on 22 June 1911 at the very moment that England's King George V was crowned at Westminster Abbey. Also featured were the John Wanamaker Choral Society, a group composed of young men and women employed by the store. There is a plaque to commemorate this date and its centenary on a post in the Grand Court. It's close to the Eagle. And like the organ, the Wanamaker Eagle also came from the St. Louis World's Fair. There, it was the centerpiece of the German exhibit of Arts and Crafts Court of Honor. The Eagle sculptor weighs 2,500 pounds and sits on a granite base. All the heavy plates that form the inner structure, as well as the feathers and other surface features, were separately wrought by hand with a chisel, file, and hammer, a technique that had never before been tried on bronze. Each individual figure on the head and the body was carefully modeled and fitted into place. There were 1,500 feathers on the head alone and 5,000 on the entire eagle. It was quickly adopted by the people of Philadelphia as a beloved symbol and meeting place. The sculpture measures three meters high, two meters long. It's one meter across at the level of the breast with joined wings. And no, the Philadelphia Eagles are not named after the Wanamaker Eagle. When Burt Bell and Lud Ray took over the assets of the Frankfurt Yellow Jackets, they were inspired by the Blue Eagle insignia of the National Recovery Administration, a centerpiece of President Franklin D. Roosevelt's New Deal. Later in 1911, the organ was prominently featured when President William Howard Taft dedicated the store. Yet despite its immense size, the tone was judged inadequate to fill the huge court. So John Wanamaker, being John Wanamaker, decided to make the organ bigger. He opened a private pipe organ factory in his store's attic and employed up to 40 full-time workers just to enlarge the instrument. He spared no expense in this process. Between 1911 in 1917, more than 8,000 pipes were added. It still wasn't enough. So after John Wanamaker's 1922 death, yet another 10,000 pipes were installed between 1924 and 1930. The final product was a two and a half ton console with six ivory manuals, 729 color-coded stop tablets, 168 piston buttons, 42-foot controls, and nearly 30,000 pipes. The blowers draw 178 horsepower. The entire instrument weighs 287 tons. In its 111-year existence, there have been only four organ masters. Dr. Irvin J. Morgan, 1911 to 1917, Mary E. Voigt, almost 50 years from 1917 to 1966, Dr. Keith Chapman, 1966 to 1989, he and his wife were killed in a 1989 plane crash, and since 1989, Peter Richard Conti. Oh, there's one more Laurel Hill connection. The granddaughter of Henry Diston, founder of Diston Saws and the neighborhood of Taconi, was Pauline Diston, 1896 to 1956. In 1932, she went through an ugly divorce from the grandson of John Wanamaker, Captain John Nelson Wanamaker, 
after a 15-year marriage. On July 20th, Pauline obtained a preliminary injunction against her husband, restraining him from divorcing her at Reno, Nevada. She also charged him with desertion and with contemplating marriage to Elizabeth Malcolm Peltz Hamilton Warburton, a wealthy Philadelphia socialite who had been married to Wanamaker's cousin, C. Edgerton Warburton, whose mother was daughter to the Merchant Prince of Philadelphia. On June 24th, Captain Wanamaker had filed suit for divorce, charging desertion. Accompanying the complaint was an affidavit alleging that Pauline was insane. She had never been committed to any institution or adjudged insane officially. When the divorce was finalized in August, Captain Wanamaker married the former Miss Warburton the very same afternoon. He survived for two years in the marriage. He died of a cerebral hemorrhage in November of 1934. He was only 44 years old and he left everything to his young widow. The next year, Elizabeth married Alexander Hamilton, a nephew of J.P. Morgan and a great-great-grandson of the first Secretary of the Treasury. Pauline Diston died in 1956. She left everything to her two children and she was interred in the Diston family mausoleum. That's the largest mausoleum at Laurel Hill East. Her son, John Rodman Wanamaker, was chairman of the board of directors of John Wanamaker Stores. In the Philadelphia Inquirer, dated 13 May 1932, there was an article about her divorce proceedings. Directly above it, strictly by coincidence, is a large photo of four men standing behind a group of children who benefited from the $120,000 donation they had made to the Salvation Army. The third man from the left is Cyrus H.K. Curtis, a man responsible for rescuing what is now the second largest pipe organ in Philadelphia. You can hear the world-famous Wanamaker organ played twice daily in the store at noon and 5.30 every day but Sunday. And there are a lot of good historical articles about it at the website, WanamakerOrgan.com. William Buchanan Irvine was born in Philadelphia in 1843 to Daniel Gamble Irvine, 1805-1865, and Irene Catherine Buchanan Irvine, born in 1803. His biographies say that he graduated from University of Pennsylvania, but I find no record of his graduation at the Penn website. Not only that, but he would have turned 18 in 1861, and I find no record of him serving in the military or hiring a substitute. Irvine was a successful businessman who rose to be president of the Knickerbocker Lime Company at 24th Street below Callow Hill. One of his directors was Joseph Van Skyver, a furniture maker from Camden. William got involved in politics. He served two terms as a member of the Common Council. In 1882, he decided to run for city treasurer as a Republican reform candidate, and he was initially endorsed by the Philadelphia Times. But Irvine was accused of bribing a councilman some years earlier to obtain a road contract in his district and a week before the election, the Times pulled its endorsement. In an article published on 29 October 1882, the Times said, As the issue now stands, Mr. Irvine is condemned by the overwhelming weight of evidence as either a corruptionist or a deliberate falsifier, or both. And he can't hope for the successful support of the people of Philadelphia with such a record staring the voters in the face. But on 7 November 1882, he was elected city treasurer. He shook off the allegations and he continued to serve the city. Irvine served as director of the Real Estate Title Insurance and Trust Company for 21 years. And he was on the school board of the 15th Ward for 10 years, serving as president for four years. Sometime before 1903, Irvine purchased space at Laurel Hill West, 
and he had a mausoleum built in the Ashland section near the conservatory. It's an area that many people call Laurel Hill West's Millionaire's Row. It is just a stone's throw from the final resting places of Dr. David Hayes Agnew, Reverend Matthew Simpson, Hatter John B. Stetson, and other movers and shakers of 19th century Philadelphia. When the mausoleum was completed, he moved the remains of his mother and father from Monument Cemetery on Broad Street, along with five siblings who had died at a very young age, including a set of twins. William Irvine never married. He lived with his sister Mary, who also never married. He died on 6 December 1914 at Medico Chirurgical Hospital on the north side of Cherry Street between 17th and 18th. This was just two years before the hospital merged with Pennsylvania Hospital. The funeral notice said his wake would occur at his home on 59th Street below City Avenue before he was interred at Laurel Hill West. That property where his home stood is now part of the campus of St. Joseph's University. Irvine left his estate of more than $200,000 to his sister Mary with the provision that when she died, the residual estate was to be given to the University of Pennsylvania for the erection of a building for a school of mining engineering or an auditorium. When Mary Irvine died on 17 September 1919, the combined estates amounted to more than $600,000. The provost of the university quickly decided that the money would be used to construct an auditorium capable of seating 5,000 people. In 1919, there was only one space capable of seating even 800 people on campus, and that was at the University Museum. For larger audiences, the Waitman Gymnasium, originally a field house, but now incorporated into the facade of Franklin Field, could squeeze in 2,500 people. That building was in honor of William Waitman, who made a fortune in quinine. He's buried in the south section of Laurel Hill East, Section 2. Waitman's daughter, Mrs. Frederick Penfield, will be the topic of a members-only podcast in 2023. So in 1919, when the university had its two biggest gatherings of the year, commencement exercises and the annual University Day exercises on Washington's birthday, it used either the Metropolitan Opera House on North Broad Street or the Academy of Music at Broad and Locust. The Pennsylvania Gazette, dated 3 October 1919, editorialized that it was about time that the university had an auditorium large enough to hold throngs of people and serve as the center of university life and a common meeting ground between the university and the community. Architect for the Gilded Age, Horace Trumbauer, who's interred at Laurel Hill West, was hired and he drew plans for an octagonal five-storied hall modeled closely after Mont Saint-Michel in Normandy, France. This was only a few years after historian Henry Adams had published his masterpiece, Mont Saint-Michel and Chartres, a study of 13th century unity. Construction started in 1926 at 3401 Spruce Street, 12 years after Irvine's death. It took three years to complete. The Irvine Auditorium today is renowned for breathtaking interior paintings, ornate Gothic architecture, and terrific acoustics. It is also the subject of a famous urban legend. It was outlined by George E. Thomas, lecturer in historical preservation and urban studies, and David P. Brownlee, professor and chairman of the Department of the History of Art, in their History of Penn, Building America's First University. In this book, they said that Irvine was rumored to be the design of a failed architecture student. The student supposedly modeled the design on Mont Saint-Michel while at Penn, but the design was rejected by the architecture department and the student flunked. This student, or his father in some versions of the legend, vowed revenge and returned to the school with a large amount of money in hand and an offer to build a performance center. The university was thrilled at the offer until the student demanded they build his failed vision. 
Irvine Auditorium. That legend is still passed around on campus. And while I was recently giving a tour at Laurel Hill West, when we went by the Irvine Mausoleum, one of my guests told that story that she had heard years earlier while she was a student at Penn. I had to correct her on that. 1926 was also, of course, the year of Philadelphia's highly unsuccessful attempt at a World's Fair, the sesquicentennial. The idea had sprung from the mind of John Wanamaker, the only surviving member of the Centennial Exposition 50 years earlier. Laurel Hill East volunteer guide Thomas Keels has written what I consider the definitive work about this South Philadelphia fiasco. Sesquicentennial Stadium was built for the fair. Later it was known as Philadelphia Municipal Stadium and then the John F. Kennedy Stadium. Another benefit to the city was the Ben Franklin Bridge across the Delaware River into Camden and the Benjamin Franklin Parkway. But the event was a massive flop and the city lost $20 million. One of the few highlights of the underattended fair was the Austin Organ Company's Opus 1416, a massive pipe organ that cost $150,000 to build. When the fair closed in November, it went into storage. But about a year later, Philadelphia publisher Cyrus H.K. Curtis of Curtis Publishing Company, I talked about him in a much earlier podcast, decided to purchase the organ and donate it to the university since it could be reassembled as the Irvine Auditorium was being assembled. He paid a small fraction of its worth. I also have to wonder if Curtis might not have felt a little competitive pressure from the massive Wanamaker organ, although Curtis did give other organs to various churches and universities. The Curtis organ was known as the organist's organ as several Philadelphia organ players put in their two cents worth during construction, including Henry S. Fry, interred at West in the Philadelphia section, and Frederick Maxson, interred at West in the Edgewood section. Irvine Auditorium was designed to house an organ of moderate size on either side of the stage, so most of the Curtis organ had to be spread around the rest of the building. It took space that was originally intended for seating 600 people. Upper galleries on the sides of the auditorium were filled with pipes, and the console was placed in the orchestra pit. The final seating count shrank to 1,976 people, rather than the anticipated 5,000. What are the official counts for the Curtis organ? four manuals, 162 ranks, 184 stops, and 10,731 pipes. The air chambers are bigger than a four-bedroom quad in nearby high-rises, and when the air compressor motor starts up, the lights in the room dim. Cyrus Curtis died in 1933. He was interred in the Plymouth section of Laurel Hill West. Maintenance of the organ was shoddy during its first 30 years, necessitated a major overhaul in the 1950s. Cyrus Curtis's daughter, Mary Curtis Bach Zimbalist, came to the rescue with money for repairs, but it again fell into neglect and it was unplayable by 1970. A student organization called the Curtis Organ Restoration Society was formed, and it has been essential in restoring and maintaining the organ for the past 50 years. In October 1972, Wanamaker superstar organist Keith Chapman accompanied the Lon Chaney silent film The Phantom of the Opera as a fundraiser for the organ, and this has evolved into an annual campus Halloween event. Irvine Auditorium was renovated between 1997 and 2000, this time using an acoustical engineer to improve the sound, but removing yet another 500 seats. Keep an eye out for an opportunity to hear the Curtis organ in the Irvine Auditorium, especially when Halloween rolls around in October. Delaware Valley. 
for over 25 years, it's been a Philadelphia tradition to join Larry Ferrara at the organ. And now, here's Larry. Good morning and welcome to our Sunday morning musical get-together here on Palm Sunday in the Delaware Valley area. And we have beautiful music for you this morning, along with the organ and the wonderful voices of the Mercer County Chorale, which will be joining us a little later on in our program with some of the wonderful sounds of this holiday season. So stay tuned for more of that. And we open up our program with some light music, and this is called The Heather on the Hill. Hope that you enjoy. A name that will forever be remembered as part of Philadelphia's Sunday morning television lineup is that of Larry Ferrari, the man with the unwavering smile and a seemingly endless repertoire of organ tunes which delighted his audiences for more than 40 years. He was known as the man with the golden fingers. Lazarus Louis Ferrari was born in Boston in 1932 to James and Columbus C. Ferrari, who were both from Gravago, Italy. They came to the United States in 1927 and settled in Boston's North End. There is where they raised their only son. James worked as a chef at the Lock Ober Restaurant, two winter place, which specialized in French cuisine and seafood. When Lazarus was born, his mother was 40 and his father was 46. Young Lazarus had an early affinity for music. When he was only three years old, he was tinkling out tunes on a toy piano. He attended a Roman Catholic grade school in Boston where two important things happened. First, one of the nuns recommended that he Americanize his first name. So he became Larry Ferrari. Second, he became fascinated with the church's pipe organ while he was serving as an altar boy. He had taken some piano lessons at home and was familiar with a keyboard, but it was the organ that grabbed his ear and his heart. His parish church had two organs, a big three-manual, 60-rank instrument in the main church and a smaller unit in the basement. The regular organist was involved in defense work during the war and was sometimes delayed in getting to church, so the teenage Larry agreed to be emergency substitute organist in exchange for free lessons. He listened to the popular music of the day, and when he was 14 years old, he started studying with a theater organist in the Boston area, who was also staff organist at WEEI Radio. By age 16, the rapidly developing Ferrari could be regularly heard at the Paragon Park Skating Rink at Nantasket Beach in Hull, Massachusetts. When he graduated from high school at age 18, he began a two-year engagement at Cane's, a popular seafood restaurant and lounge just outside Boston. He rarely needed sheet music. He could generally duplicate a song after hearing it only once. But as the Korean conflict heated up, Ferrari got tapped by Uncle Sam and he was sent to Fort Devens, Massachusetts, where on his very first day, he earned a weekend pass in exchange for filling in on piano at an on-base club. A fellow soldier told him he should try to get to Fort Dix, New Jersey, where, quote, there were organs all over the place. PFC Ferrari got to Fort Dix as part of special services and he had no assigned duties on Christmas Day of 1952, so he and some of his friends headed to a club where there was an organ that he knew would be available to play. His sergeant heard him play and entered him into a bass talent contest, which he easily won. This landed him guest spots on the Army's Talent Patrol TV show, run on WFIL in Philadelphia, and a second show called Soldier's Parade, which was hosted by another native Bostonian, Arlene Francis, an actress who was in the first few years of being a panelist on the long-running television program, What's My Line? He was also heard by thousands nationwide when he made frequent appearances on the Armed Forces Radio Hour. While still in uniform, he was appearing at the Philadelphia Musical Festival as an opening act for everyone from Leontine Price to Cab Calloway. 
After Larry received his honorable discharge as a corporal, WFIL station manager Jack Steck offered him a four-week run of his own show. He was scheduled to be half an hour on Saturday nights following boxing or wrestling matches. Sometimes the matches would run late, and Ferrari wound up playing only 10 or 15 minutes. Thus, his theme song became Once in a While. After audiences saw and heard him, he never left, and his four-week engagement turned into 43 years. WFIL-TV had gone on the air in September 1947 on Channel 6. It was owned by Walter Annenberg Triangle Publications, publisher of the Philadelphia Inquirer, TV Guide, 17 Magazine, and the Daily Racing Forum, and owner of WFIL Radio. In 1963, WFIL moved to its circular, ultra-modern broadcast facility on City Avenue, across the street from rival WCAU-TV Channel 10. In 1971, WFIL-TV changed its call sign to WPVI-TV. Ferrari did not limit himself to just performing in Philadelphia. He spent two weeks with Lawrence Welk in 1957, but he decided to stay on the East Coast as a solo artist. He was a popular entertainer at sporting events, horse shows, fashion shows, auto shows, business promotions, and along the way he performed on stage with Margaret Truman, Tony Martin, Dagmar, Eddie Condon, Errol Garner, and many other pop music figures. He also performed at innumerable high school concerts and churches. Soon after joining Channel 6 at their 46th and Market Street studio, Larry became musical director. In addition to his own Sunday show, he supplied music to the Captain Noah and his magical arc daily children's show and the popular Dialing for Dollars. As he became more popular, people became curious about his personal life. In 1976, he was interviewed by Marilyn Lois Pollock who for more than two decades wrote a nationally syndicated weekly celebrity interview magazine column with 2.4 million readers. Pollock was inquisitive about this 44-year-old man who had never married and still lived with his mother. The interview starts as follows. Oh, you'll find out I'm just a very boring person, flutters Larry Ferrari, the TV organist who keeps his hot pink shirt and flamingo tie under cover of a brown plaid suit. I'm not trying to be syrupy, but basically the thing I have to give of myself is music. I like to entertain in the vein of Lawrence Welk. I like to keep the melody out front and give the public what they want. Geriatric goldies like Fascination and Tea for Two and Too Young. Sunday afternoons, he stands out like a Terpsichorean test pattern. Pollock continues, Larry Ferrari reminds me of Tiny Tim, sans tulips, trills, or frills, all sweetness and light. He oozes gooey phrases like, I was really delighted, and a real blessing in disguise, and it turned out beautifully for me. Alas, our conversation pushes me precariously close to glucose intolerance. Every once in a while, I get mushy kinds of letters. He smiles his keyboard grin. Women becoming, how shall I say, dreamy about my music, says the bachelor who still lives with his widowed mother in New Jersey. Sometimes people will identify me with other people, which I'm really pleased that they do, he giggles as if I was Liberace. I guess they've been flustered by seeing me in person. Some people don't say very much, but others become very demonstrable. They'll come up and say, Liberace! And then suddenly it dawns on them, and they'll say, Larry Ferrari! Naturally, Liberace's trademark is the glitter stuff. Generally, we sit there in a regular suit, and maybe a leisure suit, casually. We've never resorted to spangles or fancy costumes. I love belonging to the public, as long as there's a certain amount of control over that. But sometimes you have individuals who would make themselves obnoxious that way, insincere. That I don't particularly go for. 
because I'm a mild-mannered person. I'm turned off by people who just flatter me because of, you know, who you are. Let me tell you this in all sincerity. This is my way of making a living. This is my bread and butter. But again, I totally love what I'm doing. I'm very, very happy. There are those who say uncharitably that his music is merely the quintessence of corn. Well, that again comes with anybody, I think. Uh, to me, I could say, uh, you know, if you want something, uh, but it, he sputters. Sure, I mean, again, Lawrence Welk has probably been called corn many times. My music has been called square by a lot of people who are considered to be the in crowd or the hip crowd. You can't please everybody, he says, growing pinker. People who might come back and say Ferrari is a square type of music, they're not being fair. If they say it's square or it's not hip, what do they mean by that, he says agitatedly. What, you know, what do they mean? Later in the interview, Ferrari offered a wish. What I'd like to do sometime is play the background music for a soap opera. To me, that would be quite a thrill. I told you that I enjoy totally what I am doing, and the obvious question interviewers always ask me is, do you really like what you're doing? I do really, really enjoy totally what I'm doing, and I can't explain it any other way. You always get that. It's my life. Don't mind me. I'm slowly fading into one of my beautiful sinus headaches, uh, the weather. Occasionally I get that problem. There are times I have them. It's part of life. We all have our days and our tensions. This article is much longer. It's from the Philadelphia Inquirer. It was the most complete interview with Ferrari that I could find anywhere online. Larry Ferrari was always willing to contribute his talents to good causes. For instance, he gave the last concert ever on the neglected three-manual 14-rank organ at the Boyd Theater at 1908 Chestnut Street. Attendees showed up on a snowy evening at midnight to hear him play, and this raised the funds to move the organ to John Dickinson High School in Delaware and get it restored. A little more than a year later, the refurbished organ was debuted to a standing-room-only crowd who came to see Larry Ferrari give the first concert. In 1984, he received the Salvation Army of Greater Philadelphia's award in recognition of his voluntary service to the group. Without pay, he served as organ master at the Cathedral of the Immaculate Conception in Camden for 12 years, and he played every Sunday for Mass. No matter where he played, he would never leave afterward until everybody who wanted to get an autograph or shake his hand had done so. Shortly after I moved to Balakinwood in 1989, my wife and I saw him in the old City Avenue Horn and Hardart. And when somebody interrupted his meal for an autograph, he graciously complied with his patented smile, and he chatted for a few minutes before he finished his lunch. Now, Larry never had the luxury of playing a large pipe organ on his weekly show. He usually played an electronic con or a Lowry, depending on who was sponsoring his show. In fact, I found a 1966 newspaper advertisement for a Rogers Theater organ in which it bragged, If you buy the Rogers 33E before Christmas, Larry Ferrari has agreed to spend an evening with you and the Rogers in your own home. 1962, Rogers Organ Company had produced the first solid-state amplifier and the first all-transistor organ. In 1985, there was another Ferrari-associated interview in the newspaper, but this time it was in the Camden, New Jersey Courier Post, and the featured interviews were with his mother, Columba, about Italian cooking. But there was a little bit about Larry. During open house gatherings, Columba Ferrari serves guests in the downstairs music room, which Larry Ferrari decorated. Over the brown, crushed velvet sectional sofa hang framed album covers of Ferrari recordings made between 1955 and 1982. The music room is dominated by a traditional walnut Hammond Elegante organ that is the heart of the Ferrari household. 
When not playing the organ, Larry could be found at the ham radio, his hobby for several decades. As WA2MKI, he communicated with people all over the country, only letting them know that he was involved in television as a music director, and sometimes he played the organ. He became a fixture on the Channel 6 Thanksgiving Day Parade, in which he performed on a float. He eventually became a cultural phenomenon. The Italian restaurant chain Bucca di Beppo has photos of Larry hanging on the walls of many of their restaurants. In 1992, he was featured organist on 10 episodes of the television show Wheel of Fortune, which was recorded in Philadelphia. He was even organist for the Philadelphia Flyers for a few years. On 12 March 1989, Larry's mother, Columba, died at their home in Cinnaminson, New Jersey. She was interred at Laurel Hill West in the South Lawn section. And in November 1997, 25 years ago last month, Larry Ferrari died of leukemia. His last television program, which had been pre-recorded, played 10 days later on Sunday, November 30th. At the time of his death, he had been on the air for 43 years. Only the children's show Chief Halftown had a longer run, lasting for 49 years. Tributes poured in from all over. Ordained Lutheran minister and former Philadelphia police chaplain Carter Meerbrier, better known as Captain Noah, was as affected as much as anybody. He played my show's background music. Larry and I had lunch together darn near every day for 28 years. Most people think of Larry as being identified with an older audience, but I remember him being with the children at the employees' Christmas parties. All the kids would crowd around the organ, sit on the bench with Larry, and he'd let them bang on the keys. He also taught them to play a few chords on the instrument. One of his Cinnamonson neighbors noted, when the kids came home from school, they would rush over to his house where he would play just for them. Captain Noah had the last word at the funeral service. Larry Ferrari was a kind and gentle man. Farewell, dear friend Larry. As a Christian, I am led to believe that I may yet hear you play again. Larry and his mother have a simple, polished granite stone at Laurel Hill West. There's a musical staff engraved above Larry's name. And in 2000, the broadcast pioneers of Philadelphia posthumously inducted Larry into their Hall of Fame. You can hear him play again on YouTube. A few of his shows are available. Some complete with adult ballroom dancers gliding around the floor to his songs. The Mercer County Choir, a frequent guest. There is this sort of surrealistic music video you should hunt down. It's called Larry Ferrari and Carl Carlton performing She's a Bad Mama Jamma. You really don't want to miss that one. And if you look closely, you'll find that Larry has been rickrolled. And if that's not bizarre enough, check out the totally over-the-top video called Hitler Finds Out the Larry Ferrari Concert May Be Cancelled. Even though there is only a little Larry in the background playing Heather on the Hill and no pictures of him, it's still a pretty awesome video, especially if you're a Larry Ferrari fan. If you want the links to any of these four videos that I've mentioned, email me, joe at joelex.net, and I will gladly send them to you.
by now that you've noticed we are Laurel Hill East in Philadelphia and Laurel Hill West in Balakinwood. If you become a member of the Friends of Laurel Hill, you can take advantage of many member benefits, discounts on tours at both cemeteries and in the gift shop, members-only tours, two annual members-only podcasts, few days to Christmas, you need a last-minute gift, membership is a terrific gift for friends and relatives who share your love for Laurel Hill East and Laurel Hill West. The January edition of All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, will be part three of Fathers of American Medicine. Dr. George McClellan, father of a controversial Civil War general and father of Thomas Jefferson University. Dr. Sam Hamill, who's the father of neonatal research in this country and one of the founders of the American Academy of Pediatrics. And Dr. William Pancoast, the first known American physician to perform artificial insemination on a patient. I believe his story will make your jaw drop. Biographical Bites from Bala, Laurel Hill West Stories, episode number 16 in mid-January, will be all about a Swiss immigrant named Anna Meister, who tired of being a seamstress and instead became the third person of the Holy Trinity and the leader of a religious cult, one that continued for many years after her death. I remind you that there are self-guided tours available for both cemeteries. For Laurel Hill East, download the app. For Laurel Hill West, you can find it with your podcasts. There's a walkthrough from the Kinwood Trail entrance to the Pencoid exit and another on the opposite direction. If you do the round trip, it's almost two hours of stopping at stones, peeping in mausoleums, and hearing about nearly a hundred people who helped make Philadelphia what it is today. January is kind of a light month for upcoming events. There's a Hot Spots and Storied Plots tour at Laurel Hill East on Saturday the 14th at 10 a.m. Shane Russell is doing that one. Shane is a terrific guide. I would recommend that. Our arborist, Aaron Greenberg, is doing a Sunday tour January 22nd at Laurel Hill East called Bark, Buds, and Berries Tour for the New Year. There are a couple of things I can't give you details on yet, so check the website. On Tuesday, January 24th, 6.30 p.m. in the West Conservatory. It's called Release, Meditation, and Sound Bath. And on Thursday, January 26th, online book club, Breeding Sweetgrass. And then for tours, we got another Hotspots and Storied Plots tours coming up on January 27th. That's a Friday at 10 a.m. with Laura Lewis. The next day at 10 a.m., a Sacred Spaces and Storied Places at Laurel Hill West by guide Nicole Tell. And we finish the month with part two of my virtual tour on snake symbolism at the two cemeteries. I did one in December that was Laurel Hill East, and now we're going to cover Laurel Hill West, mausoleums and tombstones with snakes and the people who are interred there. Tickets for all of these events are available from our website, laurelhillphl.com events. I am Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine from Temple University, volunteer tour guide and podcaster for both cemeteries. Maybe I will see you on a tour. All Bones Considered and Biographical Bites from Bala are researched, written, narrated, and produced by me, Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine from Temple University, volunteer tour guide, and volunteer podcaster. Maybe I'll see you on a tour. Stay safe, stay well. The bibliography is up next. 
most of the information about the organ itself came from the internet, a combination of Wikipedia, several different articles. They literally have different articles on keyboards, or manuals, I should say, Um, and another one on ranks, and another one on the types of pipes. Um, I sort of cobbled it together from that, and also from YouTube. There are a couple of really nice descriptions of pipe organs on YouTube. Wanamaker organ, I got a lot of information from contemporary newspapers. Also, there's an article called The Grand Court Organ by Ralph Blakely. That was in the Musical Times, November 1989, volume 130, number 1761, pages 703, 705, and 707. That gave me a lot of good information, as did the website, wanamakerorgan.com. Now, As far as the Curtis organ and the Irvine Auditorium, two brief articles from the Pennsylvania Gazette, dated October 3rd, 1919. On page 6, there's an article that says, An Auditorium in Prospect. And on page 10, it says, A University Auditorium in Sight. There's a 1984 article called the Curtis Sesquicentennial Organ that was published in Theater Organ in July-August 1985. There's an article called the Curtis Sesquicentennial Organ. I cannot identify the author on it, though. It's from the July-August 1985 version of Theater Organ and gives all of the specifics of the organ, including a really nice picture of the 32-foot double-open diapason. There is a little person at the bottom of it, and this low C-pipe says it weighs 1,100 pounds. I do know that the photographer on this was W. Owen Lamp, Jr. Another article that it looks like I got from the web, a PDF, maybe from the website on the Curtis organ. It says, the Curtis Sesquicentennial Exposition Organ, Opus 1416, Austin Organ Company, Hartford, Connecticut. And again, it gives all of the specifics of the organ. But I did not copy the Earl down, so I'm not sure exactly where that came from. Finally, on Larry Ferrari, lots and lots of newspaper articles. Plus one, again, in Theater Organ. This one from February 1975. It's called, In Philadelphia, Nearly Everybody Knows Larry Ferrari. It was written by Grant Whitcomb. The two newspaper articles that gave me the most information, one was that highly revealing interview by Marilyn Lois Pollack, P-O-L-A-K, that was published in the Inquirer, on, that's the Philadelphia Inquirer, on 19 September 1976. It was a Sunday issue. It was buried way back in the newspaper. But uh, that was just a terrific interview. And then the other interview was called In the Ferrari Household, the Specialties are Italian. And South Jersey Cooks, Columba Ferrari. That was in the Camden, New Jersey, Courier Post, 20 March, 1985. It's on page 49 and 50. And uh, gives us a couple of little clues about Larry Ferrari's home life. Other than that, like I say, the, the obituaries gave some good information. There was an interview with Captain Noah. Uh, lots of information on Larry out there. Thanks for listening. Maybe I'll see you on a tour. Stay safe. Stay well.